Oh, we're back, dear listener. I don't know what time it is for you or what day. For Joe and I, it's still the 25th of July. If anything really important happened in the world since then, we're not going to talk about it because this was pre-recorded. And uh, last time we spoke, basically outlining what's going on in the world and in the sense of we talked about inflation and interest rates and basically the working class being screwed with wages being frozen while profits have been skyrocketing. No talk about attacking profits. It's all about wages. And still hitching our wagon to the US empire, despite the fact that they're a bunch of bastards and that they're in decline and they're going to get us into more trouble than they're going to save us from, but we're still doing it anyway. And so, yeah, that was last week in a nutshell. And I want to talk about now a bit more still on foreign relations and stuff like that. And there's still a lot of rhetoric about China, those nasty Chinese, bloody communists. No, wait, can't say that. Can you, Joe? I mean, the bastards went and created a market economy. It makes it really difficult to talk to, about them as communists. But it's a command economy or control economy or it's dictated from the top, isn't it? Well, bits of it is. Bits of it are. Like, you know, the banking system is still controlled by the government, for example. But how many, I was going to say loaves of bread, but really, how many bowls of rice are made in, in a major city? It's all based on the market. It's a market economy, mm. but with government influence in sectors where it thinks it should influence the sector. But lots of things are still open to the market. It's difficult to maintain the argument of being a communist country when it's, oh, yeah. when it's running the way it is. And... This is the problem for people wanting to create a Cold War environment and saying those bloody Chinese communists. So what the rhetoric... Rhetoric's important when it comes to China. Like, you've got to read between the lines and the words that are being used when talking about China because the Chinese are quite clever in keeping themselves clean in many cases and not open to uh, criticism. So... The West has to struggle a bit to find ways of accusing them of being bad guys. So rather than saying communist now, you'll see a lot of talk about authoritarian governments is the new word. So you will hear far more likely that bloody Chinese, they're so authoritarian rather than they're so communist. So were, were any of the economies, though, communist? I mean, under the Soviet Union, was it really communist? Again, it was a, a centrally controlled oligarchy. Yes, probably in the early days, you know, they're almost oh, telling people what to produce. I yeah. would have thought, yeah. Because I think I remember a story about some Russian being in London and it's like surprised that there was bread on the shelves. And how do you guys calculate how much bread you're going to need? And it's like, well, the market does that automatically. So. Certainly, certainly that's one word you're going to look at. When you're reading stuff about China, particularly where it's been criticised, I reckon you're going to see more of the word authoritarian or authoritarian regime than you will communist. Now, here's the other words that you're going to see is you're going to talk, you're going to hear a lot of talk about the rules-based order. 
And Morrison was big about this, and it's a phrase that's being used more and more about how the West is concerned with maintaining the rules-based order. And I'm going to really examine that over this next 20 minutes or so. So it's nuanced and it's interesting. So by way of background, a few weeks, uh, this is from the John Menadue blog, Albanese joined NATO leaders in Madrid for what was billed as the most important summit in generations. For the first time in its history, it was attended by leaders of four key US allies in the Asia-Pacific region, Australia, New Zealand, Japan, and South Korea. We're at a NATO meeting. The message was clear. Though the summit would direct most of its venom against Russia, China would not be spared. And there was a declaration issued by member states explicitly excused, uh, accused China of challenging NATO's interests, security and values. And it accused China of seeking to, quote, undermine the rules-based international order. The denunciation of China assumed vitriolic proportions in the much-heralded NATO strategic concept, which is a wording that was adopted at the summit. Here's what I said about it. Here's what NATO, Australia, New Zealand, Japan, and South Korea said about China. The People's Republic of China's malicious hybrid and cyber operations and its confrontational rhetoric and disinformation targets allies and harms alliance security. The PRC seeks to control key technological and industrial sectors, critical infrastructure and strategic materials and supply chains. What's wrong with that? The People's Republic of China seeks to control technological and industrial sectors, critical infrastructure and strategic materials and supply chains. That's what countries do if they can. Like, it's not evil to do that. It says here, it uses its economic leverage to create strategic dependencies and enhance its influence. Yeah. It strives to subvert the rules-based international order including in the space, cyber and maritime domains. The deepening strategic partnership between the People's Republic of China and the Russian Federation and their mutually reinforcing attempts to undercut the rules-based international order run counter to our values, or run counter to our values and interests. And in this article in the John Menadue blog, it says, comments made by Albanese before and during the summit left little doubt that he concurred with the letter and the spirit of these admonitions. Okay, so I think that was all written by the NATO members and the people who were visiting Australia, New Zealand, Japan and South Korea couldn't probably sign it, I'd say. To dispel any doubts, Albanese launched a diatribe against China for its failure to condemn Russian aggression, Ukraine. And he drew a parallel between Ukraine and Taiwan and invited China to learn from Russia's strategic failure. So I have to do it right when they do it. Yeah, that's right. Now... There's a really good uh, – so you heard all those references there to the rules-based order. And I love this article because I was thinking about this and then came across an article that helped explain it all for me. So in the John Menadue blog, a guy called Mike Scrafton was writing, Official documents and speeches rarely define what is meant by rules-based international order as if it's widely recognised. If there are rules – other than the international law set out in treaties, what are they? Who sets them? What is the obligation to comply? 
He says in the early 2000s, there were some academic papers that started to use this terminology in America. And he sort of makes a case that the Americans started using this terminology and Australia started following. In relation to Australia, um, it's not always been the case that the key strategic objective of Australian governments was to secure something called the rules-based order. And a shift can be seen in the major strategic policy documents and in rhetoric since about 2010, when references to international law gave way to rules-based order. So prior to 2009, defence strategic documents contained no references to this. But in 2009, there was a white paper which made 11 references to rules-based order and only two references to international law. By 2016, the white paper, we find 59 mentions of rules-based global order and international law is referred to only nine times. So we've got this shift from expecting governments to comply with international law to expecting governments to comply with rules-based order. And this shift is a rational one on America's part because the sovereign equality of states is a key principle underlying international law which denies America's exceptionalism. In theory, international law is politically neutral. So it applies equally between autocracies and democracies. Well, America has regularly said it's not subject to international law because it refuses to be subject to the International Criminal Court. Yeah, and it's not subject to the, it still hasn't signed the treaty on the international law of the sea. Right. America. So all this talk about South China Sea. Yeah. Well, this is the point. If you're talking about has China breached international law, you've got to argue legality and you've got, you've got, you know, they'll say, oh, China hasn't, you know, its operations in the South China Sea have breached international treaty on, on the sea. Well, America hasn't even signed it. It's really tricky for America if it's going to be arguing that, China is in breach of international law because by and large it doesn't breach international law. So it's a it's an invention of this term called the rules-based order, which is doing things the way we've always done them in a way that suits us. It's mm-hmm. kind of what it seems to be. So restricting its uh restricting its well, from America's point of view, restricting American foreign policy activities within international law doesn't sit well with it. So they've had to invent this imaginary rules-based order. And as power shifts occur and non-Western states seek to claim um, the neutrality and sovereignty international law offers, the US has to cloak its activities under a new disguise. And... In this article, it says, it's unclear whether Australian ministers or their advisors understand the distinction between international law versus rules-based order, or perceive that for America, the latter incorporates the former when and only when it suits American strategic interests. So dear listener, when you're reading about attacks on China, 
typically in this field. For a start, you're going to see more about authoritarian regimes as the objection. And you're going to see this rules-based order rather than breaching international law. And when you see rules-based order, just yell out, bullshit. It's international law that matters, not this nebulous concept of rules-based order. Because rules-based order leads to situations where America continues to trade with Saudi America um, because we always have. <laughs> That's part of the rules-based order. Mm -hmm. um, talking of international law, mm. you remember the whole Australian SAS war crimes scandal? Uh, yes. It turns out that there's now allegations that UK SAS were similarly involved. Oh, really? In their own independence? In their own, yeah. Their own. yeah. It would be a culture, no doubt. Yeah. So I'm waiting to see the US get accused of that. Yeah, yep. Those special forces would have a similar culture. And these guys are thrown into an environment where that's almost guaranteed to happen, unfortunately. So, yeah, there was an image that came out with Joe Biden fist bumping the Saudi leader. Actually, before I do that, I had to get this other one out. So hang on. There was a John Bolton. Um, let me get that one. I was explaining last week, you know, there's all this criticism of this aggressive China without any recognition of the coups and government overthrows conducted by the US. And John Bolton was the national security advisor to Donald Trump from 2018 to 2019. And he worked in important roles for Republican administration in the US dating back to the Reagan era. And he's now admitted that he helped plan coups on behalf of America. So here's a little snippet of what he had to say. I don't know that I agree with you to be, to be uh, fair with all due respect. Uh, one doesn't have to be brilliant to attempt a coup. Uh, I disagree with that. As somebody who has helped plan coup d'etat, yeah. not here, but you know, other places, uh, it takes a lot of work. And that's not what he did. It was just stumbling around from one idea to another. Ultimately, he did unleash the rioters at the Capitol. As to that, there's no doubt. See, there's a man who's an expert on coups, Joe, because he's done a few coups in his time. It's not <laughs> easy. Don't underestimate how hard it is to pull off a coup. Well, yeah, to pull off a coup, but to <laughs> attend to coup, yeah. even Donald Trump can manage that. <laughs> That's right. He was basically criticising Trump. This guy doesn't know how to do a coup. That wasn't a coup. Not like we did coups in the old days. Not like well, our no, day. I did it coups. wasn't a successful coup. It was an attempted coup. Yeah. But, gee, let's hitch our wagon to this guy, to these guys, because heaven forbid what those other guys might do. So, yeah. But, you know, let's hit your wagon or, you know, and, and it's, and then there's an image of, of Joe yeah, Biden. Yeah, you know, it's, it's not Bandar Bush. <laughs> no, it's not. Bandar meant friend. Is that correct? Was that what Bandar mm, meant? Something like that. Yeah, I think that's what it meant. Yeah. He, he was so close to the, was it the Bin Ladens? So all, yeah. all jets on the day after September the 11th, so September the 12th, were grounded in the US, except for a private jet taking however many 15 members of the, uh, sorry, the Bin Laden family out of the States. Yes. Yeah. yeah before that. the FBI could uh, interrogate them. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, we've got this picture of, this is the hypocrisy. You know, you'll get this a lot with my arguments, dear listener, is... I can accept people can have a different point of view on something, 
but you've got to be able to maintain consistency. So if you're saying that you prefer to deal with the US over China, for example, then your reasons have to be consistent. And if you're saying, well, the Chinese are authoritarian monsters, then, well, in the first case, we've already exposed endlessly how the US has been authoritarian monsters around the planet. But the, the company they keep, like, what, why is it okay? Why do the Saudis not get criticised? Why is it that the endless lines that are written um, objecting to the Chinese and what authoritarian monsters and human rights abusers they are and nothing about the Saudis. Well, that's because they sell oil. Well, no, because the Saudis would never chop up somebody in their embassy. <laughs> oh, wait. No. That's right. Yes. If you, well, you just got to be consistent if you can do this sort of stuff. So Caitlin Johnston was writing about that fist bump between, um, between Biden and the Saudi leader. So I quite liked it. I'll read it. Two powerful leaders met beneath the hot jet of sun to discuss oil and killing and friendship. One of the leaders rules a tyrannical regime which funds terrorists, murders journalists, suppresses civil rights and commits war crimes. The other, the Crown Prince of Saudi Arabia, is no better. Come on, they haven't killed Julian Assange yet. They greeted not with the traditional handshake, nor with a stern finger wag from the American for the assassination of Jamal Khashoggi, but with the most epic fist bump in the history of civilization. Since the invention of the fist bump, there have been none so pure, so affectionate, so expressive of perfect union and harmony. <laughs> Observers said they thought Heard angels singing. But were they Muslim angels or Christian <laughs> angels? This is the question. Where their two fists connected, their souls merged, their eyes locked with an intimacy poets and lovers have spent their whole lives trying to capture. Their dick chakras burned with the intensity of a thousand stars. No comment there, Some, Joe. <laughs> somebody's been reading way too much fanfic, I think. This is who we are, the fist bump roared to the heavens. This is who we have always been. Our sacred bond presides over an empire that is fueled by oil and blood, and we rule as one in holy communion with the great kings of old. Nothing shall ever come between us. Not bone sore, nor mass beheading, nor strained lip service to human rights values on the presidential campaign trail. Time froze as the two joined fists in genocidal matrimony, flashing coy grins at each other upon a mountain of Yemeni corpses in the tortured bones of Syria. Their faces turned to skulls. Doves with red stained feathers filled the sky. And the Marxists of the world say, if only we could one day capture that kind of class solidarity. And the wives of the world say, if only he would one day look at me like that. And the arms manufacturers of the world say, yeah, buddy boy, this is going to be great. Let's go snort some coke off a Tomahawk missile. And the hidden saints say, something's got to give here. And the world rotates on the axis of those two joined fists 
into ecocide and atrocity and Google Hollywood dystopia. And the imperial juggernaut marches on and the earth spins off into the blackness and we all hold hands and look to providence as we plunge into an increasingly strange unknown. Quite evocative writing. Good on you, Caitlin. I like that one. <laughs> their dick chakra is burned with the intensity of a thousand stars. Ah. <laughs> uh. Ukraine. Never heard of it. Where is that? Mm. It's got white people who look like us, Joe. So when they that's bombed, true. we pay attention. Mind you, they are husband stealing whores. Yes. Or did you not hear about that? And what was that story? It was a UK couple opened up their home to a um, Ukrainian refugee, and right. then the husband decided that he preferred the refugee over his wife uh, and, and moved on with her. And that was UK headlines for a few days. <laughs> no, no, I didn't see that one. Missed that one. Okay. Yeah. Mm. Got some Ukrainian quotes here. This one's from John Pilger. I spent my career working in the mainstream and I've covered probably seven, eight, nine shooting wars. I've never seen coverage so utterly consumed by a tsunami of jingoism and of manipulative jingoism as this one. Here's one from Noam Chomsky. It's quite interesting that in American discourse, it is almost obligatory to refer to the invasion as the unprovoked invasion of Ukraine. Look it up on Google. You will find hundreds of thousands of hits. Of course it was provoked. Otherwise, they wouldn't refer to it all the time as an unprovoked invasion. Chris Hedges says, at no time, including the Cuban Missile Crisis, have we stood closer to the precipice of nuclear war. Joe, you got any thoughts? Nuclear war? Do you think it, look at Ukraine and go, there's a chance? Not to the same extent as the Cuban Missile Crisis. I can see Putin doing badly deciding to use tactical nukes. I, I think that there are cooler voices, calmer voices inside his forces that might balk at that. And of course, there's the whole, what we've discovered in this is Russia's military stockpiles have not been looked after. And whilst on paper, they have huge amounts of forces, what we found is that they've been poorly maintained and therefore they may deploy nukes. There's no guarantees that those nukes will go off. Right. Yep. So I'm not so, not as pessimistic, but yeah, I can fully see him mm. trying to deploy limited nukes. I don't think it'll turn into a shooting war though. So you reckon if he deployed limited nukes, the West wouldn't retaliate? So the Ukraine is not part of NATO and to retaliate would effectively be to start a nuclear war. Mm. So I, I could see them retaliating in other ways, but not with nuclear strikes. Right. So if he dropped one on Kiev, the West would just sit back and watch. I think that they would have no other option. Mm. They, they might increase military funding, but I can't see them getting involved in dropping nukes on Russia. So hard to know what goes on in these institutions, what real controls are there. Very difficult to know. Did you ever read that book by Eric Slot? Uh, 
was the one where there were all these nuclear accidents that it followed and how we came so close to having nuclear bombs go off at different times. I've not seen that one. No, I'll find it later and talk about it. Chris Hedges says, you know you're in trouble when Henry Kissinger, who has called for Ukraine to cede territory to Russia and to open negotiations with Moscow, in the next two months before it creates upheavals and tensions that will not be easily overcome, is a voice of sanity. That's interesting. When Henry Kissinger is telling the Ukraine, you need to cede territory and open negotiations. One of the most hawkish guys around. Mm. I, I don't know that them ceding any territory is going to be enough. Oh, I think it will be. If they... Well, Russia already said, give us the Donbass, give up on Crimea and promise you won't enter NATO and we will leave. Like, they've already said that. But they've also said that Ukraine is not a real country, it's part of Russia and always was part of Russia. Yeah, but they've said, we'll stop. So they've already demanded Crimea. They've already mm. demanded the Donbass. So they might stop for now, but that doesn't mean that in five years' time they won't be... Well, you know what? What's going to... Well, for starters, if you were a fighter in Ukraine, huddled down in some basement somewhere, living on starvation rations trying to fight these guys, you'd be quite happy to hear about that ceasefire, I bet you. And meanwhile, over five years, of course... What is the West going to do? But pile in an enormous amount of military. Are they? If if stuff. they're not allowed to join NATO, uh, yeah, it doesn't mean they can't give them stuff. It just says you are not part of the alliance that triggers all in. You know, one in, all in. So I, I just the whole the Scandinavian countries mm. looking at joining NATO now, particularly mm. Finland. Mm. I mean, if you look at the history of Finland. It, it's a quirk of fate that they are a separate country. Right. Yeah. Uh, they were granted autonomy after the Russian Revolution. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, yep. Yeah. Because the communists uh, in Finland had fought alongside the Red Army. Right. Yeah. And were granted autonomy. Yeah. And the Second World War, the the Soviet Finnish um, War was all about, oh, yes, we just want a bit of territory, but everyone said had they granted that, the Russians still wouldn't have stopped. So they are very concerned. And, yeah, the Baltic states mm. um, but, are but, very you know, concerned. But if you say, oh, well, Russia could in five years' time do it again, well, that would mean you can't ever have a negotiation about anything, though. Like, you could always um, say that about any negotiated settlement. Oh, in five years' time, these guys might tear it all up and do something contrary to the agreement. Not, not that they might, that they will never mm. be satisfied until the whole mm. of Ukraine mm. is part of Russia again. Mm. Because it is the heart of the Slavic Empire. Oh, mm. or Kiev is part yeah. of the, is the heart of the Slavic Empire. There's, yeah, it's, it's like Israel coming to negotiated settlement with the Arab nations around it. Mm. when their aim, when their stated aim is to wipe the country off the face of the map, mm. no negotiated settlement is ever going to be enough. Best, it's a temporary respite. And therefore, mm. is it better to have a temporary respite or is it better to fight the war? Well, they've lost the ground. They've lost this area. I'm not going to get it back. 
Give in. Henry Kissinger says, give in. And Henry Kissinger says, give in. I would have thought, and there's a guy who's been up for a fight on plenty of occasions. I would have thought that's a good Yeah, reason. generally when it's it's served US interests. Yeah. Yep. This is the thing. The US normally is able to bully people, so not able to mm. in this case. Mm. All right. Uh, and, of course, still in Ukraine, well, George Orwell wrote in 1984, war is not meant to be won. It's meant to be continuous hierarchical society is only possible on the basis of poverty and ignorance. This new version is the past and no different past can ever have existed. In principle, the war effort is always planned to keep society on the brink of starvation. The war is waged by the ruling group against its own subjects and its object is not victory over either Eurasia or East Asia, but to keep the very structure of society intact. I mean, if you're a cynical person, Joe, who thinks, well, there are arms manufacturers in America who just want to sell more arms, from their point of view, a negotiated settlement giving up the Donbass and Crimea would be a disaster, maybe, because arms might slow down. So it's in their interest just to keep it going. And it's in America's interest. America's not losing any American boys in this. No, just, no, not at all. And in fact, they're selling arms. So I guess they're giving away some of it in some form or loans. I don't know how it's being structured. but um, And the oil companies are doing mm, quite nicely out of it. Yeah. So for lo lots of people would be arguing, oh, we can't possibly give in because meanwhile they're doing really well out of it. You've got groups in America like the Squad, who are supposed to be these left-wingers, which would be Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, Ilhan Omar, Ayana Presley, Rashida Talab, Corey Bush, others, you know, who are supposedly this left-wing band of Democrats, but um, they're just like everybody else, voting in favour of all these these appropriation bills to provide these weapons, saying so they don't stop any of it. All but one of those seem to have Muslim names. Yeah. Eleanor Omar Kerr, mm. the Council of American Islamic something or others. I have no idea. I don't Fairly have no sure idea. I've seen that name before. Mm. So the U.S. I, House of Representatives, sorry? I was just wondering if there was any Muslim interest in keeping that war going. Don't know. Are there are mm. there Muslim republics on the edge of that region that this is taking pressure off? Or it's just Americans; it's in their blood. They just, they just have this. That's what we do. We go and fund wars. The U.S. House of Representatives voted three hundred and sixty-eight to fifty-seven to spend forty billion dollars on a world-threatening proxy war while ordinary Americans struggle to feed themselves and their children. All 57 no votes were Republicans. Every member of the squad voted yes. The massive proxy war bill then went to the Senate where it was stalled with scrutiny, not from Bernie Sanders, but from Republican Rand Paul.
This is because, this is again uh, Caitlin Johnson, this is because the left-wing Democrat is a myth, like the good billionaire or the happy open marriage. It's not a real thing. It's a pleasant fairy tale people tell themselves so they don't have to go through the psychological turmoil I of acknowledging that their entire worldview is built on lies. Object to that. I think there are such things as happy open marriages. Yes, and uh, good billionaires. Yeah, that less so. I'm sure you could find some, yeah. Maybe. Yeah, that was Ukraine. I think I've ranted on enough about that. We're going to get closer to home and a bunch of other things now. Slightly less depressing. Indigenous affairs. Sydney Harbour's got this place called Goat Island, Joe. It's near the Sydney Harbour Bridge. It's a tiny little... I think island. I might have seen it on the map. Yeah. If you're on like a little manly ferry or something, you would have seen it, probably, I guess. It's about to be handed over to the wrong Aboriginal people. Aboriginals who come from Western New South Wales and have no cultural connection to the area. Say the descendants of the harbour's original inhabitants. And it would be culturally offensive for Goat Island to be awarded to the Metropolitan Local Aboriginal Land Council because it's controlled by foreigners, said Ash Walker, a member of a different Aboriginal community. The article goes on. This is part of the problem. It's not just about Indigenous ownership. It's then within the various tribes and memberships of those tribes. So that's one of the tricky parts of Indigenous um, political rights. And there was an article we talked before about the voice to Parliament and how I'm against it for the reasons of gone about endlessly. One of the issues is how much will be revealed in this referendum and Indigenous leader Marcia Langton has warned there are risks in going to a referendum on a constitutionally enshrined voice to parliament without a fully formed model describing how the body would work. So we seem to be in a position where people are saying let's have a referendum where we acknowledge that there should be a voice to parliament Full and stop. then hash it out. And full stop. And then other people saying, and there should be a voice to parliament like this one, which we've described in this other document, which looks like this. So we'll see how that ends up. I think they need to put some flesh on the bones if they want to get people to vote for it. Well, isn't it the same as the Republic? Mm. Yeah, in principle, a lot of people mm. agree, but until they know... The model that's being proposed they want to yes hold their vote yes yep and they're trying to get around that again by saying well let's just have a vote where we agree on a republic and the only th well with that it's kind of almost simpler because you're really saying we all agree on a, we want you to agree on a republic and the difficulty will be at the president Will it be elected by the parliament or will it be elected by a by popular vote? It's it's almost simpler than how an independent voice to parliament is going to operate because you're really saying at least whoever this person is is going to have the same job description as the current governor general. 
It's just how do we elect them? Well, but that's one of the models. That's not the only mm. model. Mm. And some people may say, I, I, I would vote yes, but only for this particular model. And I don't want yes. to give a blanket yes until I know mm. which particular model we're going for. Yes. Given all that thinking, it's hard to imagine the Indigenous issue getting up at a referendum without something very specific Concrete. about what's involved. Yeah. yeah. Mm, I agree. I think I also mentioned in my discussion with Paul Waper about Indigenous representation in the Parliament and saying, well, it's already higher than in the general population. So the current Parliament, there's a record number of First Nations persons. So there's eight Indigenous senators and three Indigenous MPs in the House of Reps. So that's 4.8% of the Parliament and the actual Indigenous Australian population is 3.3%. Did you see the article about the rise in the number of people identifying as... I think when I was talking to Paul, I was talking about an article like that. There was a comment from, and I can't remember, of some Aboriginal leader saying, the problem is these people have done a DNA test and discovered some great, great ancient relative that was Aboriginal mm. and saying this is effectively skewing the data set mm. uh, because these people are now ticking yes to Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander heritage mm. and yet they are, as far as demographics go, the same as any other white Australian. And so when you look at incarceration rates, health outcomes, suddenly you have this influx of people who are not the people living in remote communities. And mm. suddenly you're going, hey, this is great. We've now reduced our, or we've increased our Aboriginal life expectancy by 10 years. And yes. all we've done is included more people who are only nominally Aboriginal in these mm. counts. Also, government funding yeah. from the federal government to the states has a component that pays more money for a higher Indigenous population. Right. And so now money is going to states because of their higher Indigenous representation and away from the Northern Territory. So that's causing an issue there as well. Yeah. Back to the Australian Parliament, 23% of Australians claim non-European ancestry, but just 6.6% of the MPs have overseas non-European backgrounds. Here's the important one. Only 4.4% of MPs in the parliament have Asian heritage, compared with 18% of the Australian population at large. So Australian population at large, 18% Asian heritage. Only 4.4% in the parliament. Joe, do we need an Asian voice Parliament to properly get across the Asian perspective of how our laws should be passed because of under massive underrepresentation. If you Given were to be the, consistent, I, I was going to say Asian Asian is an even larger area than Australia, mm -hmm. with probably even more disparate views. So. Uh, it's it's the same as you know. How do you get a, an accurate representation? Even you know, even amongst Aboriginals, 
Do the yep. the Aboriginals of WA think the same as those of you know, Tasmania? Mm. Yeah. Do they have a shared heritage just because they all were descendants from the same people 40,000 years ago? Well, the Western Sydney Indigenous people are quite different to the Goat Island Indigenous people. Apparently. Same, mm. These are all the issues, dear listener, that make this sort of thinking divisive rather than inclusive. Mm. Are you a member of the Rationalist Society, Joe? I'm not. Right. They have a magazine I, called... I, I follow them, but... They've got a, mas- a magazine called The Rationale. Has articles in it. In fact, mm-hmm. you wrote an, an article. I wrote an article for the rationale. Yep. And so I saw on Facebook or something just sort of an intro for one of the articles that's recently been written. And this one was about Douglas Murray and a recent book that he's written. And and I was reading this review, and I thought. Come on, rational society and rationale. You can do better than this. Seriously. Is Douglas Murray the bell curve? He was the guy, the strange death of Europe or something like that. And uh, okay. Yeah. So let me read the review then. I think I should do it that way. Bits of it, of the book. Douglas Murray is a wonderfully free spirit who lucidly tackles the mania of political correctness with erudition, panache, and limpid reasoning. At 43 years of age, he is a conservative. I'll paraphrase here. Murray writes without fear or favour. Well, for a start, you've just acknowledged he's a conservative. If you're going to say he writes without fear or favour, I think you'll find that he writes in favour of conservative values. Like, let's just get that for starters. He calls himself a conservative, yet in many ways he is a John Stuart Mill kind of liberal. It's the radical nihilism of the left that makes this look like a conservative position. Meaning the left is so far left um, that it makes him look conservative. He himself exhibits impressive erudition and aesthetic sophistication. One might almost evoke, in his case, the remark attributed to Bloomsbury aesthete and essayist Lytton Strachey when he was challenged by an upper-class lady at the height of the Great War as to why he was not at the front defending Western civilisation, quote, Madame, I am Western civilisation. You could say that about Douglas Murray, apparently. In his new book, he asks that we draw the line at the wholesale denunciation of Western civilization and attempts to discredit and even demolish its cultural and philosophical traditions in the name of post-colonialism, anti-racism and egalitarian radicalism, i.e. stop denouncing Western liberal civilization. He writes, in spite of all the unimaginable abuses perpetrated in our time by the Communist Party of China, almost nobody speaks of China with an iota of the rage and disgust poured out daily against the West from inside the West. 
really? Douglas, like nobody speaks badly about China. What are you reading? You're not reading what I'm reading. In spite of the unimaginable abuses perpetrated in our time by the Communist Party of China, almost nobody speaks of China with an iota of the rage and disgust poured out daily against the West from inside the West. That's just plainly wrong. People are raging against China all the time. Murray says, oh, this article says, how did this happen, he asked. It didn't happen by chance. It was brought about by radical movements in the name of emancipation. Murray writes, with reference to the fury that arose over the George Floyd, over the killing of George Floyd by Derek Chauvin. Much of the venom and fury that exists today in America and in the West as a whole now comes down to this one specific problem. People have been shown a version of their society that is exaggerated at best and wildly off at worst. I'm going to get back to this, but the whole shtick of Douglas Murray is he shows a version of society exaggerating crazy left-wing wokeism as being rampant and strawmans it and then presents his cultured conservative view in contrast to that to make it appear mainstream. So that was the article. Like, I haven't read this book, but I've read enough of Douglas Murray and heard enough of Douglas Murray to say the guy is occasionally right on things. Like, apparently in this book, he goes to town on Tanahasi Coates seeking reparations for black people in America. Like, he would be right about certain things, but his stick is to find some crazy left-wing idea that somebody might have raised in some American university or something and then promote it as happening everywhere and being a totally out-of-control left-wing situation and, and, and just caricatures and strawmans a position that he then knocks down. That's his stick. And but you, does so. you don't find that the reverse is also true that people are caricaturing the right the, the right and the right and painting a few admittedly the crazy rights are generally more violent but the left is tarring the whole of the republicans with the same crazy stick look i, I reckon that people have acknowledged that there is say a overwhelmingly it seems that people have acknowledged that within the Republican Party there are the Trump loyalists and the non-Trump mm. loyalists like people have said these guys like MTGR are all in with Trump still completely crazy there are some like Dick Cheney's daughter who are standing up to this man and are not so crazy so I think there are, and even your friend Robert Wright was saying that she might actually make a good president in these times. Like, it's Robert Wright's the guy that you sort of read yeah. a bit of, and and he was saying about Dick Cheney's Republican daughter that you know, in favourable terms, as a potential president. So you know, it's possible to say, oh, look, it's this happens on both sides, but there's a good argument to say that there actually is a lot of extremism on the right. 
if you're going to paint a guy as a as writing without fear or favour, then I don't think you can say this guy is as impartial as that statement would present itself. And it's I'm going to play a little bit here. Now, there's a podcast, dear listener, that you really need to subscribe to, which is called um, Decoding the Gurus. So episode nine does a great job on Douglas Murray where they ask, can indulgent dinner conversation save our civilization? And they really, Douglas Murray is in a podcast talking to some other guy and, and, and talking about just stuff. I'm going to play a little bit of what Murray was saying on that podcast now. The, the beginning of this whole thing started in the UK, I think in America to some extent. We had this thing of we must protect the health service. You know, we must protect the hospitals by not mm. being ill and going into them. Uh, of course, I mean, I and others said at the time, uh, you know, actually the health service exists to protect us, not the other way around. Uh, it isn't that we form a ring of steel around it, but that it's meant well, to form it, a ring of steel around us. Just plain stupid. Like the whole point was we were worried about our health services being overrun mm -hmm. with too many patients. And that's just a stupid comment by this guy. And it's done with this posh, toffee, Etonian English accent. And it's quite often just crap. And it's this, I'll play another, I've got another clip here somewhere. Hang on a second. Let me find this one. Let me just quickly find this one. Oh yeah. Let me just um, play this one. Well, in, uh, what I'm talking about is things like, oh, I don't know, you're in a bar, you, you need to squeeze through a space and somebody touches you on the arse as you do. It's not the end of the world, you know? You didn't ask for it, but you're in a highly sexualized place. And so what? It's quite flattering. You don't always want it. If you really didn't want it, you would, you know. Uh, but you're in that game. You're in the in the sort of sex-like So for context, he's a gay man and yeah. therefore possibly is more used to being touched on the arse by strangers in bars. Not impugning gay people, but they tend to be, of all the demographics, I would say, most likely to appreciate that. And for, for gay guys, bars are highly sexualized places, aren't they? Depends on the bar, I assume. Yeah, you know. Exhibits impressive erudition and aesthetic sophistication. Madame, I am Western civilization. Just, it's... If you're listening to Douglas Murray or you're reading it, just ask yourself when he's describing crazy leftish wokeism or he's describing a situation, is he exaggerating? Is he really describing a situation that happens frequently, is a genuine problem, or is he caricaturing something that will then uh, aid his argument that you know the West has lost its way and our marvellous civilization? has been unfairly criticised. The guy is not a an intellectual powerhouse by any means and take everything he says with a grain of salt and, you know. It's like Lord Monckton. Mm. 
Who what did Lord Monkton say? <laughs> Who's oh, Lord no, Monkton? Oh, he's a climate denier, climate oh, change right. denier. Is he? Uh, hey. Yeah, he's very famous, but he is he is a lord. He's yeah. a, a peer of the realm. Uh, okay. And so he stands up with his you know, upper-class English accent yep. and holds forth about absolute bullshit. Yep. Hey, we're coming up to an hour on this, and for technical reasons, we need to keep this <laughs> under an hour. And uh, what else did I want to say? Oh, we've got this stuff on Albanese. I know, on Morrison, census data. You know what? Oh, just briefly, Joe, while we're still under the... One hour. Yes. Did you see the thing about Australian of the Year and disability advocate has shocked fans after a video emerged of him using a sex toy on his partner at a restaurant? Did you see that? No, I didn't. Oh, I'm surprised you didn't see that one. No, good on him. But that's it. That's the spirit. Who hasn't as long used as a sex was... toy on their partner in a restaurant? As long as I it was discreet. Yeah. Well, I think he published it on Instagram. If that, is that still discreet? Does that count? I don't know how much ah. the other dinosaur. I don't know. Well, exactly. That's that's the point. Yeah. I think I don't think the other dinosaur much. I don't know. People on Instagram saw enough. <laughs> I mean, if you if you're dragging other people into your sex life without yeah. their consent, that's a bit yes. rude. But that's right. It's under the table, and nobody sees anything. There you go. Hey, we better like finish this up, otherwise it'll cause me a technical issue. 59 yes. and 6 seconds. All right, Joe, thanks for your company once again. Talk to you next week, listeners. Bye. Well, dear listener, did you enjoy that episode of the podcast? If you did, I've got a favour to ask. Uh, first up, tell some friends. Let them know about the podcast. You'll be discussing something at some time and you might be repeating something I've said and... When you're talking to your friends, say, hey, I heard this on this podcast and it's worth listening to. And maybe pick an episode that you think's a good one and direct them to it. Like grab their phone and go to their podcast app and search for Iron Fizz Velvet Glove and subscribe <laughs> on their behalf on their phone and, uh, and just put the word out. The other thing is you could become a patron and support the show. So if you... Go to our website, you'll see a link to Patreon and there are some different options for subscribing and paying per episode. And really, the amount that you pay depends on what you get from the podcast. So there's different levels ranging from $1.50 Australian to, I think, $10 and various ones in between. It's really, what do you think it's worth? Is it worth a cup of coffee? Uh, is it worth... More than that, less than that, whatever you get out of it, because not everybody gets the same. Maybe you don't listen to the whole thing. Maybe you never talk about it with people. Maybe you really couldn't care less half the time whether the podcast is there. It just it'll be different for everybody. So if you get a lot out of the podcast, contribute a bit more. If you don't get much, contribute less. But in any event, you can subscribe there. If you don't like the idea of a regular subscription, the website has a link to a PayPal donation. So you could just do a one-off donation every now and again. So there you go. It'd be good to uh, spread the word, get a few more listeners. And that way, look, if we ended up getting more listeners and more money, we could do maybe a second episode or more special episodes, provide some more content. So it's up to you 
you think it's worthwhile, let people know. Thanks.